I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. We don't have to. You don't have to include this in the thing, no, but no. I just wanted to, to say that Mike had to block someone from our Twitter account the very first time because I just made a comment about how it's a pretty low bar for DC that the uh, reactions to the new the Justice League movie, the you know the Frankenstein of a Justice League movie, uh-huh. are it's fun and okay. <laughs> it's like it being okay is like it's real good for them. It's sure. really good. It's and, like their Citizen Kane at this point. <laughs> and and uh, somebody just really really had uh, there's very oversensitive apparently the the dc movie f- t- fan twitter verse i call it is, nerd partisanship it's you're so saying people overblown. on twitter are oversensitive about comic book movies yeah <laughs> i hadn't I, noticed that no I, but it's but it's dc specifically yeah. and everyone everyone who might speak ill of them are doing because they are partisans of marvel and they love everything marvel does and uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't engage at all. I was not yeah. going to engage, Mike. So I just I was... responded. I'm like, he's like, yeah, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, dude, you're the one who brought up Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> it's like nobody was talking about Marvel before you. And it's possible to say that an output from a studio of a franchise has been really, really bad, without it being that I'm some sort of like enemy agent of another corporation's <laughs> corporate output. And it's like you know, I enjoy a lot of Marvel movies, but ultimately most of them are fairly disposable. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm getting a check from them. I'm not saying how great something is. If anything, I have the, 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 what is my attitude towards the X Men franchise, which is the most uneven franchise oh, yeah. of any movies. That you have something like Logan, which I think is a legitimately great film, and then you have like you know X Men Apocalypse, which is just like a gar- garbage fire. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's awful. It's not even fun. Speaking of cinematic garbage fires, I was on a long plane ride recently and uh, looking, you know, over over the shoulder of the person in front of me at what they were watching, uh, which was uh, Tom Cruise, The Mummy. Oh, oh my God. Did either of you see it? No. No. Okay. So I only saw like 30 minutes of it on the plane, but it was... That that thirty minutes with no sound was amazing. <laughs> it, like I I'm like okay I know exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, you know, not having seen the first ninety minutes of the movie, um, the uh, the mummy kills his girlfriend and then he becomes the mummy. Spoiler alert! Um, and you he show has, that in the trailer. Uh, the, he right, wakes right, up right, on right. a slab in the fucking trailer, right? Of course. And then he has to like administer the mummy's kiss to the mummy. And so then uh, later, my friend my friend who I was on the plane with who was sleeping through this. Uh, wakes up and, I, and I'm telling her, oh, I, I was watching this Tom Cruise mummy movie and uh, and he becomes the mummy. And uh, and she said, oh, does he like wrap bandages all around himself and stuff? <laughs> I said, no, this was more like a sexy lady mummy movie. And she said, gross. <laughs> it's kind of weird that you would make a sexy mummy. Because if there's anything... It is weird. A mummified body is uh-huh. not sexy. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I mean, all bodies are beautiful, hashtag. But... Um, <laughs> I think decay is not a thing that most people go for. <laughs> well, I mean this this mummy was was very well preserved. <laughs> oh yeah, um, a movie a movie that was so good in quotes that uh-huh. it, that it destroyed the Universal's attempt at making a cinematic right. universe. Okay, we should just throw this out there because everyone's trying to create their own cinematic universe. Uh-huh. How about this? You make a good movie. 
that people really like that maybe has an Easter egg in it. And then if that works out, then start mapping out and green lighting 12 other movies. No, I don't think so. Let's, let's not do let's that. have some space between these things. You know, let's let's actually make sure that we like a thing, because sometimes you double down on it because you're already halfway done with the next movie. But I guess with this one, they're just done. I th- it sounds like the dark universe, of the original writers. I think Orsi and who's the other guy? No, Orsi wasn't involved with. Uh, was this it Orsi? It was, it was just Kurtzman. Kurtzman. Um, yeah, I think that they've abandoned the project. Kurtzman it's and the guy happen. who was the writer for like the last five Fast and Furious. Chris, what's his face? I can't remember the last name. Some guy named Chris. Chris something. Some yeah. guy named Chris. That's yeah, what it says so, in the credits. So basically, the pre- people from sort of uh, the J.J. Abrams verse, and then the guy who was the writer for most of the uh, most of the Justin Lin, Fast and the Furious, they were supposed to be the, the big uh, brain power behind the, this new dark universe, uh-huh. cinematic universe, and it's dead now. Other it's totally than, gone. Other than the it's fact... mummified. Yeah, mummified. Well, <laughs> did anyone want this, though? That's that, the part that I don't understand. I don't think so. Was I mean, anyone, I don't know. Because I was thinking about this the other day and saying, well, you have this property, and just because people recognize it doesn't mean you have to make movies. It's like, how many times does Robin Hood or King Arthur need to get trotted out uh-huh. before it becomes really, really obvious that there really isn't a market for it? That you can do it, you know, not your daddy Zorro, but, I mean, it doesn't... <laughs> I yeah. don't know if there's an audience like, for this. The, the reason, like, why would they have made the Lone Ranger movie? The Army Hammer Johnny. Oh, yeah, it's I like, don't know. who would be alive now that would even, like... You've vaguely heard kids of it. Don't, kids right. don't know the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger is something from your grandparents' generation at this point, if you're a millennial. It's something that you may have heard of. That yeah. You may have heard that song at some point, but it's not like the Lone Ranger was part of your childhood. That was like when they did that Shadow movie yeah. in the oh, yeah. 90s, I that guess. That was just because they were trying to make another Batman. That's right. why you had Dick Tracy in the Shadow. Yeah. And but when the last was the time, Billy Zane one? Yeah, Billy Zane was the... Uh, he was, the no, he actually, was, the character was just Billy Zane. <laughs> yeah. no, Billy Zane was the Phantom. The Phantom, yes. yes. And uh, Alex Baldwin was the Shadow. Yes. yes. Uh, that's back when... Actually, they had a weird amount of variety in their comic book movies. Mm-hmm. But um, well, I was thinking about this and saying, well, have a reason to make a movie. That seems like such a bizarre and obvious thing. But yeah. not just we need to have a franchise. It's a lot easier to get people to buy a ticket to a thing that they vaguely recognize the name of. It becomes sort of like cinematic McDonald's where it's <laughs> like I can go to any town and get the exact same hamburger. Where it's like I kind of know what to expect and that's better than I guess – a movie that I don't understand that might challenge me or do something that surprises me. When I was thinking about this, of how do you do a franchise film? And I was thinking, you know, if you want to do the reboot of the Universal Monsters, make them auteur films. Mm-hmm. Give them to somebody who has something interesting to say. Don't worry about them matching each other. And just say, hey, what does a Wes Anderson Invisible Man movie oh, look like? I like that. Mm. What does like a Coen Brothers version of a werewolf movie look uh-huh. like? Uh, Quentin Tarantino does Dracula or, you know, Frankenstein. I mean, it, just something. And I was actually thinking that the movie that's coming out from Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, which looks amazing, is that version of a Creature from the Black Lagoon movie. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. What if this was how they approached it? What if The Shape of Water was the first movie in an unconnected series of artistic reboots of older monsters? And where they let a creator just go wild with something. What if Errol Morris actually did the interview with the vampire? 
Do that as a frost feed, Nixon. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. uh. Speaking of cinematic universes, what I thought you were going to say when you when you brought up McDonald's was why hasn't there been a movie set in the McDonald Land cinematic universe? <laughs> oh, that would be a fucking nightmare. A, gr- a, a dark and gritty grimace movie. <laughs> oh, they have to give that movie to John Waters. Yes, <laughs> we got to go full like. Sid and Marty Croft creepiness. Uh-huh. The Hamburglar is some kind of a, a real creep. Yep. I, the, there's a there's there's some element of the the whole the mummy thing which it missed. I mean, it's just like the Transformer thing. It it mystifies me that they are so popular, but on some level, not intellectual level, just on some brainstem level, I sort of understand why it's there. Yeah. But it's just a major crime, say, for example, that the mummy made like $400 million, and Blade Runner 2049 can't get anywhere near Wait, there. the mummy made money? Yeah, it made $400 million. Oh my god. <laughs> I did, I, but it didn't, it didn't make as much as they wanted it to, so okay, I, I, gonna... I guess I assumed it was a flop. Can, can, you, can you think about the insanity of a movie making $400 million, and that being such a bad sign for them, uh-huh. that they have to cancel all of their movies? Oh my god, we've only made... Half a billion dollars, cancel the rest of the movies. So that's the thing, though, is that it's not just the the cost of production anymore. It's also the the cost of promotion, yeah, yeah which marketing. is often just as much as the movie itself. It's like I think they said that with like the Ghostbusters movie or with any other reboot that's been coming out recently, is that you have a movie that costs about a hundred and fifty thousand or million dollars. Jesus yeah. Christ, that's how bad it is. <laughs> hundred and fifty million dollars, and then you have promotion. Including all the the tie-ins to different restaurant chains and everything, and that costs you like another two hundred million dollars. The sexy mummy meal at Burger King. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the sort of stuff where you're just throwing commercials out there that Hollywood is so desperate to get people to pay, you know, ten to fifteen dollars to see a movie that they're just going to throw the cost of another movie at just trying to say, mm-hmm. hey. Don't you want to see this more than all the stuff you can basically see for free on the internet? Isn't isn't uh, Get Out? Isn't that a, a proof of concept? Is that you don't need all the marketing and you don't need the budget and you can do something absolutely incredible? I hope so. With a, with a movie, like why well, does Universal need to be convinced they had it? Yeah, and they had Get Out this year. Why do they need to be convinced that they need movies that will cost $200 million and $300 million to market when they already have two things at their doorstep to yeah. make them understand, yes, you can do good with less and you do not need all of the like the overage in marketing? Well, I think that's – again, like speaking of Get Out, which was amazing – um, that could have been your auteur version of like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm-hmm. where you take a basic concept or monster and you give it to somebody like a Jordan Peele. Yeah. And say, hey, what can you mine from this? Do this, go crazy, and we'll back well, you. That's it's- why they gave Jordan Peele the Twilight Zone. Yeah, the, yeah I think yeah. he's the perfect guy to yep, do the sure. Twilight Zone. Yep. I mean, because I know at, at one point I thought Outer Limits was going to be done by M. Night Shyamalan, and we all <laughs> just sort of gritted our teeth. <laughs> Oh no! No, no. That, that runs. That's interesting because I recall that in the aftermath, in the, uh, the sort of the afterglow of J.J. Abrams finishing the Star Wars movie, um, it was speculated that he or his production company had bought the rights to one of the last undeveloped. Um, Rod right. Serling movies, mm-hmm. yeah. not TV shows, movies, and that he was going to do. So I was like, oh, he's JJ James is going to take over basically all of the genre properties from the 20th century and make them his. Um, and now, interestingly enough, it's Jordan Peele who's being handed it, which I think is far more interesting than whatever JJ Abrams. Jordan Peele's going to do much more with it. That's yeah. I yeah. think that's again the thing is if you're going to make something that has a vaguely recognizable hook, make the rest of it aside from the hook compelling too. I mean. 
if, even just going from Marvel, I'm pretty sure Guardians of the Galaxy sold some tickets on the fact that it was a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. But that trailer sold the movie. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. it's a space raccoon and a talking tree and lasers and quips and stuff. What if the material sells the movie rather than it just being like, oh, hey, we want to see Charlie Hunnam or whatever play, you know, King Arthur? Yeah. Man, we, we really used him as our, as our dead <laughs> horse, back. Charlie Hunnam, because uh, I think we talked about him last time. Do we need to, <laughs> do we we need need to have it. a rule that says we can't mention Charlie Hunnam? <laughs> uh, speaking of trailers, has, uh, did, have you watched the uh, Ready Player One trailer? And if so, what did you think if you haven't already talked about it on uh, the show? Uh, I thought it was such a strange choice for a book that's about uh, a nostalgia in an, a childhood growing up with video games and comic books in the 80s. Steven Spielberg is a ridiculous choice to make yep. a movie about ki- people who are kids in the 80s. I mean, if Steven a- Spielberg is a great guy to make... Indiana Jones, which is about your childhood watching serial movies in mm-hmm. the you know in the forties, but you can't make a tribute film to yourself. <laughs> I mean, I could try, <laughs> uh, but I really think that with with the the point of this is that it should have been J.J. Abrams making Ready Player One. Sure, because I suppose so. If if anyone's all about nostalgia porn, it's J.J. Abrams. I mean, he's all about I want to essentially do mashups of things that I love and things that I remember. And just repackage and remix them in a different way. That's always been his real strength. That's what that's what Super Eight was for him. It was essentially him making a Spielberg movie, and the same way that he wanted to make essentially a, a soft reboot remake of the first two Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Sure, I mean it's a stuff that he loved, and he wants to sort of bring that stuff back. I mean that's always what he's kind of been all about. But weird, weirdly, so is George Lucas, and I think that if we're going to do franchises or that's the route to kind of go. Stranger Things is uh-huh. a lot of fun. And yeah. Stranger Things has a lot of pastiche stuff in it, but it uses that as a launching point to create a new thing. And I think that's what I want. I don't want another thing that's just in a franchise that I vaguely remember. What did George Lucas do with Star Wars? He mixed Kurosawa um, mm-hmm. samurai films with um, like these Flash Gordon serials. He took two things that he liked when he was younger mixed them together in a unique way, put a new splash of paint and a production value that it had never had before, and he made something new with it. Because if you want to see a, a straight-out high-budget pastiche of just Flash Gordon movies, they made that with the Queen soundtrack. Uh-huh. But Star Wars was something kind of new made out of those pieces, and I think rather than just make a new Goonies movie or make a new Gremlins movie, uh-huh. why not just say, I want to make a movie like Gremlins that mm-hmm. evokes the same thing as this? And that's what Stranger Things is yeah. for a lot of people. There's elements of Spielberg and John Carpenter. Uh-huh. And, Alien, uh, Alien sure this season. Stephen King. I mean, there's all this stuff sort of mixed in there, but it's mixed into a new thing, and there's enough new pieces and new characters and new ideas and new stories that it still lets it be a thing that isn't just, you know, whacking off to the 80s. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go back to the Jordan Peele thing, do you think they're going to let him be interesting, or is it going to be a case like with the Harry Potter movies where they're like, look look at these great directors we're bringing in who are genuinely great directors, and the movies all kind of came out the same? Well, because that, that's a corporate product. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the thing that made Edgar Wright leave Ant-Man, and I think yeah. that... That's the next thing for superhero movies, I think, which is that we've already done the big shared universe where we're stewards of this corporate product, this IP, and that you have these studio heads looking down there over their, over your shoulder and picking at things that you're doing and saying, no, we got to do this. This is what people want yeah. and making a bunch of crowd-pleasing, fun, well-acted movies that don't really challenge you. And I think 
giving them to a director who's going to do something weird or controversial. Again, Wes Anderson, Spider-Man, anybody? <laughs> well, it occurs to me that, uh, you know, I learned a lot more about the comic book industry after meeting up with you, Mike. But it occurs to me that the thing about the function of Marvel and DC, which they do represent a huge portion of what's produced in the medium of comic books, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not everything, is that a lot of writers and artists work so they can work at one of the big two, and they cut their teeth there, and then they go off and do what they want to do, you know? Yeah. So it occurs to me that the Marvel movies, and to a lesser extent the DC movies, could be exactly the same situation where Taika Waititi gets to do this amazing movie that's, I, from everyone says it's gr it's a great movie. It's fun. And then for, afterwards, yeah. someone will give him $150 million to do something that, like, you know, like, like Hunt for the Wilder People, but maybe has something that's a lot more interesting about it. I love know? Hunt for the Wilder People, yeah. first of all. Um, uh, but I, I love Taika YTT, but I don't want him, now that he's ascended to the, the mountain of Valhalla with, you know, $100 million budgets, that he's going to stop doing the things that made you want him to direct a big movie in the first uh -huh. place. That, again, speaking again to the comic book thing, is that somebody like Ed Brubaker can cut his teeth and make money writing a bunch of Batman stories. And now that he's built up a fan base, he can create a comic book series that is creator-owned and controlled. And he can go off in his own corner and do the thing that he's really passionate about over here that might not be marketable to a co corporation like Marvel. I don't see the movie equivalent of that because the the thing that I love about comic books, why they're my favorite medium, is ultimately they're not expensive to make. Yeah. So you can take much greater risks with them. And it's not like somebody had to drop, you know, $300 million on a Superman comic, no matter what your special effects budget is. Yep. And I think because you can go that route, a lot of times you can go big, but only when you need to. Because there isn't this pressure to get people to have the spectacle of the big budget movie experience with a comic book. So you can do a small story that just has... Spider-Man dealing with a tiny thing, and then Spider-Man dealing with a major thing. But there isn't this need to make everything about a blue laser going into the sky. And Spider-Man has a weird rash. Yeah. I mean, some of my favorite... Turns out, it's just eczema. Yeah. One of my favorite eras of Spider-Man comics is from the 70s, written by Jerry Conway. And I just like to call that era, everybody pile on Peter Parker, <laughs> because there is a whole story arc where it's just nothing but just the worst luck that this character could possibly have. Let's just everyone shit on Spider-Man. There's a story where he loses his mask and has to wear a cheap Halloween equivalent where he's got eye holes. And Amazing. He can't, can't breathe through it very well. Um, his... His aunt has gone missing and finds out working as a housekeeper for Dr. Octopus. And then he's got an he's got this pain in his side, which he finds out is an ulcer from the stress he's going to. And there he might go. get fired. And it's just like all of these things where he's just like, I have to save the city from that. But oh, God, my side. I thought I was joking about the rash thing, but apparently no. not. And it's like that's the sort of stuff that I think gives it that sort of that appeal. And I think that's what makes those characters lasting in the first place is – that it's like, I do these incredible things, but it actually makes my life worse, not better. Uh -huh. And I think that a lot of times movies nowadays are such a money industry. Well, I, well this is – it's certainly true. These large studios are producing fewer and fewer uh, actual movies, and they're putting, they're putting more money into mm -hmm. fewer projects, which is actually what the – music industry did starting in the early 2000s is they spent a lot less money actually developing new artists and they just spent more money marketing the existing ones. Yeah. But but there's so many more movies released these days than there has been in any previous decade and um it is 
it's incredible when something like Logan or something like Blade Runner 2049 happens and you're just like, well, this shouldn't exist and it's great no. that it does yeah. and it plays in 2,500 screens. But there's so, so much more that there's no need to rest your hopes on, um, you know, Buena Vista just deciding it'll be benevolent and take a chance on a real good director so your favorite fr- franchise from childhood can finally get one that actually feels good. There's so much more in it. I mean... That this is all saying this is kind of our bread and butter. So yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm talking myself out of a job here, but uh, but like there's a there's a there's a lot more to talk about. So when we're arguing on Twitter with someone who like just can't let go of the fact that maybe the DC movie isn't great, I just want to be like, well, I don't care if they're not good. I don't <laughs> care which major corp- other, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of other great shit that doesn't have anything to do with D- DC, Marvel, or Disney. Well, I mean, but the fact that people get angry because you don't like this specific product made by this major corporation, yeah, and that you must be a, a tool of that other major corporation, then I can say that like. A hamburger I had at McDonald's sucks without being, like, an agent of Burger King. <laughs> uh, no, you're definitely part of the court. But again... The, the court of Burger King. And what I really what I really love in this is that, I mean, I love comic books. And I, I've always loved comic books. And some of the comic books I love are Marvel or DC. But frequently, I just can't fucking deal with either of them. Mm-hmm. Well, how many... But how many of these partisans that were sort of these hyper-partisans that we're talking about... Are these avid sort of whiny man children who love the the comic books, and how many of them are just like, well, I just know Batman through through cultural osmosis, and I just it really needs to be good for me, you know? Well, I I wonder what they get out of this then, yeah. because if they enjoyed Batman v Superman, I really don't know if I can have a conversation <laughs> with them because I don't know what they liked about it. I really don't, yeah. and if they, it's kind of like. You know, a scandal with a politician and the sort of blind partisanship that often comes up out there is like, how bad does something have to be before you go, whoa, that's not what I want. Fuck that. Uh-huh. Um, otherwise, it feels like this point of pride where it's like I've sort of defined myself as a Batman or DC fan and I have to hold the line no matter how much this thing sucks. And it's like, like I'm admitting to some kind of weakness if I just go, wow, I didn't like that thing. I mean, who fucking cares, yeah, ultimately? I mean, when Batman runs for Senate, some shit is going to come out. <laughs> yeah. And you're going to have to decide where you stand. Yeah, the fact that he's basically a rich man who goes out and beats up the mentally uh-huh. ill at night. Yeah. Yeah. Sp- uh, speaking of Taiko Watiti, did you see the quote um, that was going around uh, about how he uh, showed um, the, some executives the, uh, the sequence uh, um, set to Immigrant Song, and they were mm-hmm. like, this is great, what is that cool song? Oh, no. Jesus Christ. <laughs> and he was like, uh-oh. And so as soon as I read that, I did like the bad parent thing and like, you know, said to my 13-year-old, get over here, do you know this song or not? And she's like, yeah, I know this song. I'm like, Thank God. I'm an okay father. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, it's... So, so what you're saying is that the people making decisions about greenlighting, like a potentially billion dollar making movie, have never heard of the things that are part of the building blocks of culture. I guess the building blocks. I yeah. just I want to get to that point where there is the equivalent of a, an image comics in the movie industry and mm-hmm. other places. A place A24 you, is probably the closest that you can get to probably, right now. I mean, United Artists back in the day was kind of like that, too, where you could create things. Miramax used to be that. Yeah. Miramax <laughs> oh. has some problems nowadays. But no, A24, I would say, is probably that, uh, is probably that sort of, you know, completely off of left field, completely auteur-driven, uh, you know, studio, production, I guess they're distribution more than they are production. Um, and, you know, 
eight out of ten things that I see that I that I watch of theirs, there's something about it that I'm like, well, I've never seen this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to. The other thing too is that I guess the comic book industry, if you want to look at Marvel and DC in the same route that you could look at blockbusters, which is that you get this kind of monochrome movie world where there's this one thing that does really, really well. And that image is kind of this release valve where I love the medium of comic books and I want to see other sorts of stories by really talented people. And now that there is a way for them to make a living doing this with a thing, because that's actually the beautiful thing about image because you control so much more and own so much more of it that I might send 10, sell 10 times as many Batman comics, but I have such a smaller percentage of the money that I make from that, that, yeah, I can. I have to sell this a huge amount of Batman comics to keep going, and it, you know, Batman's crack. It doesn't need a salesman, right? And then with <laughs> with uh, something like you know, Sex Criminals, uh-huh. the Chip sure. Zdarsky and uh, Matt Fraction have a comic book called Sex Criminals, which is about two people who, when they have an orgasm, it freezes time. And they use that power to rob banks uh-huh. to save the failing library that one of them works at. And it gets fucking weirder from there. And it's already fucking weird. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that would never pass muster with a, with Marvel or DC, even at a studio like Vertigo, which is quirkier and more challenging than the stuff there. But he's free to do it. And because he keeps most of the money that comes back from that, he can sell 10% as much as that Batman issue and make a nice, nice living. And I like the idea that you can make a living without touching major studios or getting involved in movies where the the studio hands are on it and they're micromanaging everything to try to make everything non-challenging and popcorny and fun. And it seems... I mean, I like the Marvel movies, but most of them are ultimately forgettable because really what you have is a fun performance by a great actor in something that I'm never going to think that much about. It's, that The thing that comes about of me watching the movies that I've watched this year, I think up to, up to 251 that I've seen. Nice. Is how many of them just exist solely in your short-term memory. Oh, yeah. That when you see that many of them, the ones that really stick out and the ones that stay with you and the ones that you revisit in your thoughts really are something special. And how few of those superhero movies manage to make the cut, no matter how much you enjoyed them when you saw them. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is a lot of fun, but I almost never think about it. Yeah. I mean, I had to reach for the name just now. It's not, I always use <laughs> Doctor Strange as my, uh-huh. as my go-to example. But it's but a movie that I saw for the first time this year, Drive, with uh, Ryan Gosling, uh-huh. I've thought about that movie a lot. Yeah. I thought about Logan a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought about In Bruges a lot. These are <laughs> movies that I love. In Bruges is terrific. These are movies I saw for the first time this year, and those are the ones that I keep revisiting or thinking of scenes from. Do you know and, Do you know the movie Ronin with um, uh, De Niro Jean, uh, and, and Jean, Jean Reno? Yeah. I know of it. Because um, that, that is the movie for me that I have only seen once, like... Uh, you know, I just like wandered into the theater one day myself, uh, like when it came out and, uh, you know, it really was just a vehicle for like, can we make the, the most, uh, innovative tight car chases that we can, there's yeah. nothing else to the movie beyond that. And it is stuck with me for that reason, because there was just that laser focus on, can we do this better than anyone else? Uh, and, yeah, uh, I, it's I, so much fun. I feel like that's the, yes, I, I do like Ronan actually. I mean, there isn't the, the plot around it is, I do not heist, remember the it's plot. A, it's a heist movie yeah. of sorts, basically. It's the same thing that we harp on constantly about what John Wick is and what it does is John Wick is not 
chariots of fire. Um, but the thing that it chooses to do better than anyone else is to make a a very impactful, exciting, visually visually vivid um, uh, fighting stunt stunt work, essentially, but also clever stunt work, right? And and, and it does that so well. That and it also has at least enough of a framework of having sort of a cool setting and a and a backstory that it really doesn't matter that the only motive the motivation the kind of clever motivation but they killed his dog so he's right. going to get revenge on them it doesn't matter that's all that's all you'd ever need to know uh-huh. Just, that's all you actually need to know but the rest of it is is so interesting uh, that's right there that's there's something to be said about that the, the movies don't need to be all things to all people sometimes they can just right. do one thing really, really well. And that's what I want more of. And I think that's the sort of thing that when a movie has to be a massive blockbuster, you need to make that money back by getting as many people to see it as possible. And not all movies are for everybody. There's some movies that I can admit are great that just aren't for me. And that's fine. But I mean, I think when you pile on that much money, that's that's when everybody has to have a finger in it to make sure, you know, like, you know, what if what if we accidentally offend this grandma? Um, is there a mechanism for making a, a big name comic book movie without spending that much on it and well, therefore therefore having all of that baggage come with it? Yeah. I don't know anything about the movie industry. This is a totally naive question. I think Dread would probably be the closest one yeah. to where somewhere where they was a was a mid mid budget film mm-hmm. based on a on a well known comic book property and sure. I think that came, critically came out really really didn't come out box didn't come out like yeah. Marvel numbers for box office but critically was very well received very faithful I'd say yeah I, I think but that, that's just one of you know a hundred but yeah you so. can do it I think that nowadays they just they've got in their heads that everything has to be Star Wars budget and right. Star Wars return. And uh, I think that's a loss. Can we just be done with Star Wars already? Uh, I global ban on talking about Star Wars on this this right now. No more uh, Star Wars talking. Yeah, I just. <laughs> I just I, I if just you want... told ten year old me that I would be getting a new Star Wars movie every year, I would have been excited. But now I just I don't really want it. <laughs> I, I yeah, just be careful up, what you wish for. Right? I, I looked it up. The thing about A twenty four is I was just talking about how awesome A twenty four is. The Highest grossing movie they've had so far was Moonlight from last year, and that was $65 million. Yeah. They've never even had a movie where they've broken $65 million for the like five years that they've existed. And that's the reason why they do they can't do what they do, is they are okay if most of their movies make less than $5 million. And you can office. get a variety of things. You don't yeah. just have one flavor. And I think that's what I want. I but, want... but it makes you wonder, like, how could they still stay in business if you're making most of your, you know, most of their movies are losing money. Yeah. Well, I think the the ones that lose money are you get paid for by the ones that do make money. I think that's always been the model. Mm -hmm. Is that socialism? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is, but I think that has always been the model until recently where everything has to be big and everything has to be successful suddenly. I mean, cable channels used to be that they'd have one company that owns like five of them and one of them makes a ton of money. And the rest of them are like the original History Channel. Right. Back when it was all about Nazi gold. This is before it was about like Bigfoot. Right. I mean, that was a thing that you'd have. You'd have like Bravo. Before Bravo was a channel that was all about reality shows, that was like the channel you went to watch opera on. Uh Uh-huh. That's why it's called Bravo. So I remember, uh, like, one of the things, I, I, my day job is, is uh, writing about food, um, and I, uh, the thing that got me started on that more than almost anything else was living in New York in 1998 and watching the Food Network, which back then was basically just a 
person standing behind a stove and cooking and talking about it, and they had to make that interesting. And, you know, that's all it was because they had no money. And, you know, having having no money uh, can be a real exciting creative constraint. Um, and, uh, you know, as soon as, as soon as they became a hit and, you know, Emerald came in and, uh, and they're like, oh, we've, we've, we need more Emerald. We need, uh, we need more of this and more of that. Like, uh, it was no longer interesting to watch. Hmm. Well, cause then the product is just flashy. Yes. And I think that uh, that's a weird thing. I think we have this paradox now that there's more stuff than there's ever been before. And I do kind of hold to Sturgeon's law, the mm-hmm. idea that 90% of everything is crap. But the more stuff there is, the bigger that 10% also gets. So I'm, I'm happy to sort of be there, that I can live with the Transformers of the world if it means that I can get Get Out. Yeah. Um, but I guess the problem is, is that it's much harder for Get Out to get out into people's consciousness when it's competing Boo. with so much. Yeah. It's, but there's a real, there's a real lack of oxygen for things that could yeah. become huge. And like Stranger Things, I, I, I will talk about how much I love Stranger Things, but ultimately, if Stranger Things was not on Netflix, which is a, 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 a venue that most people were already paying for, and mm-hmm. now they get this thing for free, I don't know if people would have would have paid like a dollar an episode or Probably something not. like that or taken a risk. This isn't like Star Trek Discovery, where, again, most people who are buying into CBS All Access are doing it for one show. Um, people were already buying Netflix. They already had Netflix. So you can take a chance on something like that. Then you're just spending time. But it's a lot harder when you're saying, hey, how about you give me 10 to $15 and two and forty two hours and 45 minutes of your time, and I have to make it worth it for enough people to pay for something that cost production and promotion-wise like $300 million. That's insane. So yeah. of course you're going to get – everyone's going to want to get their money. They're going to force product placement into it because you have to offset those costs and – I don't know. I I think there has to be a place for mid-range and smaller budget movies again, and it just feels like they're getting pushed out. Yeah. I got an orthogonal question here. Yeah. Does, for you two, does product placement in movies bother you as much as it does me? Because for me, it is it, it, it so frustrating that it makes me give up on some movies if it's way too obvious and way too poorly done. So I I think it really depends for me how how it's handled. Like I think I I'm uh really good at not noticing things in movies like people will point out continuity errors to me like wow, I've seen that movie four times and I never noticed that uh you know that person was wearing a tie and then they cut back to them and they weren't wearing a tie. <laughs> um so like the uh you know the the Coke bottles going going by taking up the whole frame, I might no- miss that also. Mm, okay. um, if it's done in a way that's funny, I don't even know if the Corona in in uh, Furious <laughs> Seven was was a product placement or not. Probably it was, um, but it was handled in a way that was that was very entertaining. Sure, um, nice. so it's it's you know it it depends like you know if. If I were like you know could have the choice to like uh, you know wave a wand and make product placement disappear, yeah, I probably would. Mm. It's dumb, but uh, if you have to do it um, and uh, you uh, can take that on as a challenge and say like, okay, you know, I got to do this dumb thing. Let's do it in the most entertaining or seamless way possible. Then I respect that. Can you play it off as a joke, or can you make it feel organic rather than because if you're going to film something in like Times Square, there's no re- way you cannot have product placement in that scene. Sure. But I think that it can get so intrusive to get obnoxious. I, when it feels like a movie is stopped and a commercial is started briefly, yeah. that's for me. When And again, the examples that they always give for like Adam Sandler movies. 
oh, have gee. like aggressive well, product placement where they actually stop the plot or make the plot about a commercial furry product like Dunkin' Donuts or yep. Cruise Line or something. They always do that kind of thing. That's obtrusive. That's obnoxious. And that's the sort of thing that I would just roll my eyes at. But sometimes you can do clever product placement. Like, uh, actually, Blade Runner has some that makes the world yeah. feel more real. Uh, yeah. Um, Atari. Actually, that was one of my favorite things about Blade Runner 2049. Was It was product placement for products that don't really exist anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the Pan Am building right. or the Atari logo. I right. mean, this is stuff that... I'm not even sure if Atari exists and makes games anymore. I'm no, not... they, exist as, they exist as a holder of IP, but they don't make right. any games anymore. So, I mean, you can do it. Or that scene that makes fun of product placement in Wayne's World. Yep. I mean, you can do sure. stuff like that, but... Actually, th- there's the thing is, uh, after Wayne's World did it as co- consciously... We are, this is product placement, but we're stopping and we're making a joke out of it. Is it just impossible to do it and have it be funny if it's like a break, fourth wall breaking? Like, look at us, we're doing product placement. Is it now, after that, impossible to do and have it actually be novel and funny? I think yes. <laughs> I, I think it would almost work better if you used fake products now. Mm, because it's somewhat less profitable, I think. <laughs> it's a, entirely less profitable, but uh, there was a superhero character in DC years back, Booster Gold. Yes, kind of like I'm the uh, with Booster Gold. Booster Gold is sort of the Pete Rose of superheroes, where he's mm. this guy who was a football player in the 25th century, <laughs> who bet on his own <laughs> games, and, deci- and now that he's a pariah working as a janitor... <laughs> they, they've and a, solved the concussion uh, problem by the 25th century. century. <laughs> yes. They haven't fixed the gambling problem, right. though. This game is still super dirty, and uh, so he's working as a janitor and steals a bunch of time travel, high-tech stuff, goes back to the present day, and uses future tech and a vague but not very good knowledge of future events to become a superhero. Oh. And to get rich and make money. And one of the things he does at one point in a comic uh, called 52 is sell advertising space on his costume. (laughs) (laughs) And... Have moments. Hey, where he, wait! Wasn't there? Didn't wasn't there a ninety nine two thousand movie that had uh, Greg Kinnear in it? Yes, it that, that that he Greg would, Kinnear did a very similar thing in uh, Mystery Man. Mystery Man. Yes, he yeah. had a superhero who had who sold costume who sold advertising on his costume. Right. It's like when I'm not fighting evil, you know, I get a thirst I, on. I'm guessing Booster Gold predates Mystery Men. Uh, he does. The, I think the advertising thing came later, but mm. the advertising thing involved a lot of the fake in DC Universe products like right. Soda Pop and stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, there's or uh, Big Belly Burger. There's a couple ones that just kind of carry over that sound enough like a real thing. Does Booster but, Gold predate Howard Chaykin's American Flag? Do you know? Probably comparable. Booster Gold is from the mid-80s. Mm. He's the superhero of the Reagan era. Sure. Right, right. Which, uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty interesting. I think he's a he's a great character, and I thought if there's ever going to be a DC character that would still work now, the idea of a person from the future who actually doesn't know about the future to the degree that he doesn't know fucking history, so he's actually pretty useless as like a Kyle Reese figure trying to prevent something awful. Wait, wait, I, I actually just realized now, Booster Gold is a ripoff of the character from. Mark Twain's uh, Connecticut Yankee and King, King Arthur's, Arthur's Court. Court. It's sure. exactly the same thing. Except less effectual. Right. <laughs> yes, probably. <laughs> so, yeah, I like the idea of a guy who just didn't pay attention in, in school. So he really can't help you with what's going to happen next week. Because most things that happen next week are not going to make it into the history books of 100 years from now. <laughs> I mean, except for the weeks we've been having lately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think, honestly, that no matter how many people fall victim to the purge of their own social problems and the fact yeah it's like the great creep purge is is continuing but i think that that's something that in a hundred years gets a sentence yeah 
That's not that's not something. I mean, it not we're not as a big deal as we think we are. Oh, sure. And that's that's always a, the the most painful thing to sort of deal with. Unless you're the president, you're lucky to get any mention. Yeah. In a history book of a couple hundred years from now. So, are you uh, saying that Rado versus the Martians is not going to be appearing in uh in history books for 22nd century school children? I'm going to say that either we get no mention at all, <laughs> or we spawn a religion. Uh, yeah, I think, yes. I think you're talking about like the, the Bill and Ted model of history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Either either we go full on a Bill and Ted, uh-huh. or we are not even a footnote. So so we become the solution and, and create world peace? and uh... Or the, the opposite, and we have sort of this like <laughs> Taliban-esque sort of devotion, and people slitting Great. throats in our names. As long as, as, long as George Carlin somehow gets reincarnated in your future, I'm on board. <laughs> if, if our disdain to Zack Snyder leads <laughs> to some kind of ideological purge of people... No, so um, not to not to punish the point too much, but wasn't there like... isn't Don't we need a little bit of sympathy for Zack Snyder? Didn't there was some reason why he had to stop making the movie? Like he had a death in the family or His something terrible? His daughter committed suicide. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and and really Joss sad. Whedon came in... Was it? Did he come in because... Zack Snyder couldn't finish it, or also it was problematic and Zack Snyder couldn't finish it? My understanding is that um, Zack Snyder had finished principal photography, um, that Joss Whedon came in in post-production, but that they refilmed much of the movie. I don't know what percentage of the movie. I think that they've been fighting with that movie for a very long time Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what people want. And when Wonder Woman came out and people actually liked it, I don't think DC was prepared for what positive reinforcement felt like. (laughs) And they started going, oh, shit, we can't cut any of the footage of Wonder Woman we have. Let's put more Wonder Woman in the movie because people don't hate us for that. (laughs) And maybe a lot less of of Ben Affleck doing CrossFit while being really fucking angry. (laughs) And I mean... Just glowering in the rain. And it's like, and I think that they've been, this is the problem again with making movies and you're not even releasing a movie and you're already halfway into the sequel is that you don't even know if people like the thing that you're already doubling down on. So you have to keep kind of going back after, after the fact and then stitching new limbs and cutting old ones off of these things until, like you said before, it's a Frankenstein. And I really think that, that Justice League, despite the fact that, People's opinions and expectations were probably super low. These are managed expectations going into Justice League. That they're like, oh, wow, that wasn't the worst thing since cholera. I guess it was pretty okay. <laughs> now, if it's going to be a Frankenstein, can it at least be a sexy Frankenstein? Yeah, like a sexy mummy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's probably not. I think it's going to be a movie that is obviously changed a lot and the best you can sort of get out of it is a fun, co- incoherent mess. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best guess is that most of these movies, and I count Marvel in this too, just says, hey, can people feel fun watching this actor be this character? Mm-hmm. The plot really doesn't matter. And it's just another blue beam going into the sky that we have to stop. Yep. Well, uh, the the fate of the Batman, who's going to take over the Batman after uh, Affleck is like, is constantly teetering. Like, I think there was a point where he was not going to do the next one, and now he is going to do the next one. So... It, they they really do have the chance to seize on something amazing um, 
by casting by making a really left uh, you know com- completely off the wall choice for who's going to be Bruce Wayne in mm-hmm. the next movie. A Christopher Plummer. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He's he's the only one that can save uh, us. I think at this point if you're going to have any long-term goals, Tom Hanks is your only bet because yeah, if sure. there's anybody who's not a secret creep or a secret <laughs> white oh, supremacist I'm, like cross yourself, dude. <laughs> oh. Tom Hanks, you better fucking be a nice guy. Uh-huh. Because I swear, you're going to break me, sir. Yeah, didn't we talk about this before? For me, it's Jim Varney. Of course, he's dead now, uh-huh. but still. A CG Jim Varney Batman. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Where he's constantly <laughs> saying Vern. You want to <laughs> My name's Robin. It's not Vern. <laughs> you want to know what I actually look most forward to with Justice League? Um, is that um, Henry Cavill had a mustache that he had grown for a different role. Interesting. And he couldn't shave it off to do Justice League. So in this movie, Superman has he's go- driving around as Superman with a mustache that they CG off his face, oh. and I really want to know what that CG upper lip looks like. <laughs> this is very exciting. That's going to bring a lot of people into the theater. I just want to know, and I've heard a couple. I people, wasn't going to see that movie, but I think now I am. I need to see some footage, and it's probably going to be a really adv- uh, advanced Blu-ray extra feature about the CGI mustache being. Taken. Oh yeah, but I would just like you know. It's so weird, but a mustache does take some time to grow. Uh-huh. And people don't really appreciate how long that takes. I've got no analog for this except that in the last Star Trek Next Generation movie in Nemesis, there is a Riker Troy love scene where Riker is naked, uh, is he's from the torso up, uh-huh. and uh, Jonathan Frakes didn't want to shave his back hair, so he basically <laughs> forced them to do digital <laughs> Hair removal on his back hair. So yeah, they spent I don't know how many millions of dollars removing Jonathan Frakes. As opposed to the cost of getting just a bick. (laughs) Yes, he didn't want to shave his back. Did he explain why? (laughs) Because that seems like a weird hill to die on. (laughs) Because that's That's hard. That's all I got. That's all I got. We can speculate. There are many things you could have said where I would have said, "Okay, I understand the principle of the thing there." Like you know, I might not have made the same decision, but I I am on board. (laughs) Considering that Riker almost always wears a shirt. Yeah. So it's not like you really need to do that for anything. What is he if anything, you see just sort of his hairy chest. You see like he's got a V-neck mm-hmm. or something. You, you rarely ever see him shirtless. Never pantsless. Never pantsless. Never let Riker go pantsless. If there's ever a character on Next Gen that's going to go around with no pants on, it's going to be Riker. Yeah. Again, Riker would be the guy that we would see if we get outed in the Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> oh, no. Not Jonathan Frakes. Oh, oh, Riker. Riker the character. Riker sure, sure. the character. Riker's the guy where you're just like... Because I know you've brought this up a bunch of times, Casey. I mean, how many episodes of Next Gen are there where Riker's on trial for being a creep? <laughs> <laughs> that he's like, oh, you probably shouldn't have touched the ambassador. Uh-huh. <laughs> now they want to put you to death, Riker, and, or something like that. And you're just like... Uh, keep it in your your pants, Riker. <laughs> okay, but to to any any executives, studio executives who are listening, I will shave my back hair for any any role. <laughs> call me, call me. I'm available. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. 
please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. I was born in 2025, but I wish I'd grown up in the 1980s, like all my heroes.